Hi, this is Robert Cunningham, pastor of Preaching and Vision at Tates Creek Presbyterian Church. We want to thank you for listening to this resource, and we hope and pray it will be a blessing to you. One quick word, though, before you listen. While we are honored to be a resource for you, we do want you to know that an online sermon is no substitute for congregational life. It's a good supplement, but what you need more than anything else is membership and involvement in a local church. If you are not a member of TCPC, I want you to know that listening to your pastor is far more valuable than listening to this. If you are a member of TCPC, I want you to know that joining us in worship on Sunday is far more valuable than listening online. So to everyone, we are encouraged that you have sought us out, but much more encouraging would be for you to seek out a local church community. That said, thanks for listening, and may God now bless you as you do. Hello, everyone. Um, I'm preaching on camera once again this week. Uh, I, I, uh, your feedback was overwhelming. I heard you loud and clear. Uh, you really did enjoy um, seeing me and, uh, and along with hearing my voice. So uh, we'll do this for the time being. Um, there might be a week where, um, because of the scheduling, we're unable to do it this way, but we're going to try to make it happen every week for you. Uh, you need to know it is a death for me because I am really going to miss preaching in my pajamas. Uh, but I suppose I love you enough to shower, shave, put on a coat and tie, and let you actually see me. So our New Testament reading this uh, Sunday is John chapter 11. And we will begin in verse 14. I'm going to read the whole story, the whole account of Lazarus. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my, bro my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet uh, come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews were with her in the house, consoling her, saw, her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to Jesus... To where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, 
he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew, that you all, I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. The word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Our God, we come again this week. First, we, we want to say thank you for what you did last week. Um, yes, it was strange to worship Easter that way, but you moved, and I've heard testimony after testimony after testimony of your movement. And so we're asking you to do the same thing again as we continue to uh, gather only together as families, as roommates, perhaps even alone. Lord, I pray that we would know we are not alone, that your Spirit is with us, and that you intend to do everything you always do when your Word is preached, even through this strange medium. Lord, thank you for allowing me to be freed up last week and preach to a camera as if I were preaching to um, a sanctuary filled with people. Uh, that, that came from you and that only comes from you. So I pray again for your anointing. I pray again for your freedom. I pray again for your articulation, your wisdom, your, your um, boldness, yet gentleness. Whatever I need to preach this well, Lord, I pray that you would grant it and that you would use it to whomever watches. In Jesus' name, amen. Like I've already said, I do want to continue with Easter's theme again this week, uh, but this week will be a little bit more in-depth. Um, I'm expecting uh, this unconventional time to be very similar to what um, our normal pattern is, which is we do have a lot of guests on Easter Sunday, but the Sunday after Easter is when I try to go a little bit more in depth on the resurrection um, for, for those who are um, members and regular attenders of TCPC or, or those who, um, to whom uh, the, the news of the resurrection is significant that they're turning in, tuning in the second week. And I thought of John 11. It's a fascinating passage in many ways, but the reason I thought of it is because of that verse 14 where it says, Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe. So it's very clear that Jesus intends to use Lazarus as, as an example of sorts, 
uh, to literally let him die so that he can raise him up as a lesson for the disciples and for us. Now, one of the unique things about this moment where we find ourselves is that death is on the minds of everyone. It's a rare cultural hour uh, where that which we don't like to think about has forced its way into our collective imaginations. We can argue whether all of the coverage and all the social media and all of the, the graphs and the death count, we can argue about whether all of that information is good for us, but the reality uh, is, is that it is there. It is a thing that we're all facing. Our death-avoidant culture is not able to avoid the reality of death right now. And so I thought that while our eyes are fixed on death, perhaps we are uniquely prepared to learn the lesson that Jesus has for us in Lazarus' death. And what we find here is a new way forward, a new way forward both in life and in death. The story of Lazarus changes the way we live and changes the way we die. And I want to look at both of those today. First, this story changes the way we live. Now, before we explore how this changes us, let's exegete the main message here. Pick up the story of verse 21 where Martha says to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on that last day. So Jesus tells a mournful sister who has just lost her brother that her brother is actually going to rise. And she gave in response the standard Jewish, uh, Jewish answer in that day that I know he's going to rise in the resurrection the last day. Most mainline Judaism, with the exception of the Sadducees, embraced some form of a resurrection at the end of the story, at the end of the era. But the idea had become more of an abstract idea rather than an actual expectant hope that changed them. Sort of like when someone dies in our culture, mourners are comforted with th things like, he's in a better place now, or I know he's smiling down on us, or something like that. These are not necessarily core convictions that our culture is, 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 is standing upon as much as they are social comforts that our culture tends to offer. In other words, what she does here is she gives the canned religious response of that day, but the words are not a true consolation to what she's going through. But then, in one of Jesus' uh, famous I Am statements, he takes this empty cultural idiom and he, uh, he makes it come alive with his fulfillment. He takes her eyes off of an abstract idea that really doesn't matter to her, and he fixes it upon himself. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Jesus offers these words with the utmost sincerity. This is not heightened allegory. This is not uh, telling a parable. He's not trying to convey some deeper spiritual truths. He is actually claiming an actual cure 
to death. So let me state this as plainly as I can. Jesus actually claimed that those who trust in him, though yes, they must die, they will die, they will one day actually physically in real space and time wake up from the dead and come back to life perfectly restored in their flesh. That is the answer. That is the answer to the Christian view of death. Those who by faith belong to Jesus will by the power of Jesus rise up from their graves just like Jesus. He takes Martha's sinking sand belief in some cultural fairy tale of goodwill and he says, no, 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 Martha, look at me. Do you believe I have the power to raise your brother? Do you believe that my promise is stronger than his grave? Do you believe in me? And then he gives a reason to believe. Fast forward to verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave. Stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not just tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So she's still not getting the significance of this promise. Verse 41, so they took the stone away. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And then it says this, the man who had died, how's that for a past tense? The man who had died came out. So there you go. Jesus promises to be the resurrection. He proves this is so in Lazarus, so you can believe him with certainty, end of sermon, great promise. But the detail I love here is the rest of verse 44. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. I want to suggest that that imagery of Lazarus alive yet bound by the clothing of death is a good illustration of how many of us live out the resurrection promise that is ours. We have the promise, both the present resurrection of regeneration and the future resurrection of redemption. That is to say, we are alive in Christ and we will be raised by Christ. And yet, we live as if this promise is not true. We are the living bound by the clothing of death. And I love how the story ends where Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. That's what I want for us today. I want the resurrection to set us free. As we truly believe in it, we truly trust it. We truly live it. I want this promise to unbind us and let us go. To let us go live our lives changed by the resurrection. But how? 
what does the promise, I am the resurrection and the life, whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live, what does that have to do with our actual lives? In other words, I think it's easy to imagine what that has to do with our future destiny. What does it have to do with us right now? How does it change the way we live? The easiest application is the one Paul makes in Romans 8, that since we have been raised, put to death that which leads to death, meaning a, a resurrected people have no business indulging in the things that lead to death, the sins that lead to death. And this is absolutely true. The resurrection, not just the cross, is our motivation for repentance. But I want to explore this more. Outside the obvious lesson of repentance, which I, I really don't want to minimize. But still, I think we need to explore what a resurrected life actually looks like. And what I want to suggest is that the resurrection will bring proper order to our lives. How so? A life firmly rooted in resurrection promise repudiates both extremes of Gnosticism and Hedonism. Allow me to explain that. Some Christians think that to live the Christian life is to be Gnostic. A Gnostic life is a life antithetical towards this life that believes that does that disbelieves in the goodness of this life and therefore believes that life should be exclusively marked by denial perhaps even suffering until we finally get to break free from this miserable worldly existence and get to uh, get, get you know get caught up in some heavenly reward that's nothing like this life the problem with this is that it denies the resurrection because the resurrection affirms the beauty and significance of this physical world and the joy of life in this world. The resurrection promise is that one day we will have all of this, but without the stain of sin, sickness, and death. This, only this perfected. This without pandemics. This without pains. I mean, what will the Gnostic do? What will the Gnostic do? when they wake up from the dead into a remade world full of beauty and wonder and physical pleasures and unimaginable glory that is begging, just begging to be enjoyed for all eternity. As our previous senior minister at TCPC, John Sartell, used to say, what will we do in the redeemed world when we don't even know how to enjoy this world? Again, return to the example of Lazarus because I think the text is inviting us into his example. Do you think Lazarus enjoyed life after Jesus raised him from the dead? I think it's safe to assume he did. I think he savored it every moment. I think he probably hugged his kids like he had never done before, that he kissed his wife like he had never done before, that he got his friends over and they stayed up all night laughing and feasting like they had never done before. I'm willing to bet that he savored the goodness of life more than ever. And this is what the resurrection invites us into. When this quarantine is finally lifted, and we are safe to um, hug again, for example. I hope you enjoy, in fact, you will enjoy those hugs like never 
before. Those dinner parties, that first dinner party is going to be amazing. And I hope it's our church that leads the way in filling this world with parties once again. That's the holy business of a people with resurrection as their conviction. But there's the other extreme that the resurrection forces us to avoid. And speaking candidly here to our um, immediate audience, um, we in the Reformed Church um, who aren't scared to party at all, <laughs> um, particularly might be susceptible to this. There are, there are those who oppose Gnosticism, Gnosticism with a subtle form of what can only be labeled hedonism. The problem with this is that it too is a denial of the resurrection that we believe because implicit in hedonism is that this life is all there is to live. Certainly this is the predominant worldview of our culture of excess, and it gives birth to such things like the bucket list phenomenon that we are seeing so popularized. There's nothing wrong with having a bucket list, okay? It's fine. I, I get the sentiment behind it. It's, 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 it's great. I get it. Mark Randall is the king of bucket list items. It's okay. But do you know what could be implied if we're not careful in the bucket list that this life is all there is? Our mission in this world is to suck as much life and joy and pleasure and experience out of it as possible before we die. Let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we're going to die. What an offense to the resurrection. This, this, this death-filled world has crippled our longings such that we have forgotten what it means to truly live. Like I said last week, we have lowered our expectations for this life. We have actually come to believe that life is found in being the prettiest, that life is found in being the wealthiest, that life is found in being the most productive, that life is found in filling our days with as much fun and as much pleasure as possible. We are going to wake up in the resurrection and laugh at our silly bucket list and our small visions of glory. Let us not insult the promise of resurrection with a hedonism that suggests this life is all there is, so we better make the most of it. It's nonsense. Do not wrongly suppose that when the virus passes and the quarantine is over, that somehow heaven awaits. It will be great. I can't wait for it. But the same thorns and thistles will still infect the ground post-COVID pandemic. Again, back to Lazarus. Of course, he savored life like never before after his resurrection. But at the same time, I guarantee you that life as he knew it would forever pale in comparison to what happened to him that day. I mean, seriously, you give me an experience that can top the resurrection from the dead. I guarantee that as much as he loved his newfound life, and you know he loved it, still he was longing. He was pining after what he knew, he knew uh, now with an absolute certainty was his destiny. 
And it's that certainty that transforms not just the way we live, but also the way we die. We've seen the resurrection change the way we live. Now let's consider how the resurrection changes the way we die. We've been imagining uh, what, it, what it was like for Lazarus after his resurrection, but there is one part where we don't have to imagine. I didn't read this, but in John 12, the next chapter of John, this is what we read. When the large crowds of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So the chief priests are threatened by Lazarus, not just Jesus. And they plot to uh, kill him just as they will uh, plot against Jesus. Which means, that don't, don't read that as they, they, they hired a hitman. What this means is that uh, they would have brought him in for a trial. They would essentially uh, told him to renounce Jesus as Lord or be put to death. Which makes one wonder, how'd that conversation go down? Lazarus, you renounce Jesus or we're putting you to death. Okay. No, no, you don't understand, Lazarus. We're going to kill you. Yeah, no, I heard you. Been there, done that. What's the big deal? I mean, seriously. What was Lazarus' view of his approaching second death? You know what I think? I think he probably now yawned at the grave. Listen, I'm not trying to make light of death. I'm really not. It is a horrible, horrible tragedy that we see in John 11. Jesus himself weeps over. But I think you see my point. Either we believe in the resurrection of the dead or we don't. Of course it will hurt. Of course we will weep, but not as those without hope. Beloved, I fear we're losing this. I said this in a recent sermon, which feels like forever ago, but a recent sermon in Acts, that, um, you know what the church was known for, the early church was certainly known for it under Nero, but has been, has, uh, been known for throughout the ages? People who knew how to die. You can persecute us, you can imprison us, you can beat us, and yes, you can, you can kill us. But there was this, this um, peculiar confidence about them, even as they stood before their own graves. And this has always been so because Christians truly believe that we are just falling asleep until our risen Lord wakes us up from the nap of death. The resurrection is such a powerful hope that it transforms the grave into an instrument that doesn't end life as we know it, but instead yields the life that we want to know. Because of sin, our bodies, indeed all of creation, is not fit for glory, and yet we long for glory. Every single one of us does. Our only hope of obtaining that glory is that this mortal life must be buried, that the, immortal might, that the immortal life might rise. 
This is the point of 1 Corinthians 15 that we read together last week on Easter. This perishable, this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on the immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and when the mortal puts on immortality, then and only then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Do you see what he's saying here? We have to be made new. Presently, we are not fit for God's full promise. My eyes are not ready to behold a resurrected creation. My feeling senses are not prepared to touch a resurrected creation. My mouth is not prepared to taste resurrected food. I have to be made new. Which means that our bodies, indeed all of creation, must go through a rebirth of sorts, must be put to death in order that uh, we might come alive through the miracle of resurrection. The corrupt has to go to the grave that the incorruptible might rise. So, as I like to say, Christians look at their approaching death and say with audacity, let the winter come. It is the only pathway to spring. So the resurrection changes everything. It changes the way you live, and it changes the way you die. And so at this point, it really only does come down to one thing. That unsettling question he asks of Martha in our passage that I want to ask of you. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Martha, do you believe this? Answer him, Christian. Answer him. Do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus is risen from the dead? Do you believe that Jesus has the power to raise you from the dead? Do you believe this? More so, do you believe him? And if your answer to that is no then may I be so bold to ask one quick follow-up question. What do you believe? If not this, then what? Please, indifference is off the table when it comes to the way you live and certainly when it comes to the way you die. To me, I found no more compelling answer than Jesus Christ. I'm going with the one who rose from the dead. And if your answer to what you believe troubles you and leaves you unsettled, perhaps even disturbed, then I strongly recommend Jesus instead. Now to us who do believe, who hear Jesus say, do you believe this? And say, yes, Lord, I believe. Perhaps within, help my unbelief. But yes, Lord, I believe. I think the application here is very simple. Prove it. Prove it. Show it. Let our lives testify to the resurrection that we believe. A resurrection that is promised to change us. A resurrection that changes the way we live. And yes, changes the way we die. Let's pray.
And so, Lord, change us. Change us. Let this not be a disconnected, abstract idea of something that happened uh, 2,000 years ago and something that will happen in the far-off future. Let the truth of Jesus risen from the dead transform us now. Transform our lives. Bring proper order to our lives. And yes, as we look to where we don't want to look, the demand of death, may it transform the way we approach that demand. Jesus, when you came out of that tomb, you changed everything. May our lives testify that this is so. In the name of the risen Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.